0: So I have friends who have that very liberating kind of deconstruction that has led them to flourishing. And I get DMs from psych wards, from people who said, I heard it was gonna be great. And now I have no meaning left, and I don't know why I'm alive. Because they've been left bereft by the deconstructionists who are just evangelists of the, of. they're not, they're arsonists at some point. I'm right and you're wrong. This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Apostates Anonymous, the show you turn to when you're no longer an evangelical, or even a Christian. Join hosts Matthew J. Distefano and Keith Giles as they tip over just about every sacred cow known to man. You're sure to have a good time, if you're a heathen or heretic or apostate or reprobate. If you're an evangelical, maybe you won't have such a good time. But either way, we want you to listen. You can check out Apostates Anonymous wherever you get your podcast fix. Now, on to the show.
1: G'day and welcome back to another episode of the Ideas Digest podcast where we, just me today, explore the challenging ideas that divide us and humanize our enemy along the way. That's dangerous business as you'll find out. Now, my name's Conrad, Matt is not here. So I'm gonna play this next game by myself, play along at home, review or not a review. Here we go, this one comes in from Marwan Bear. Titled, oh it's five stars, that's helpful. Titled, challenge my limited world of view. Self aware. They say, challenging and yet entertaining from Canada. Review or not a review. Oh, just a totally review No, it's fake. It is a review because, let's face it, after the week I've had, I just need a bit of a pep me up. So thanks for sending in that review. Very self-aware of you. You really understand the purpose of the show. Thanks for dropping that. And if you would like to support the show, head to Apple Podcasts, write a review, or head to eyesdigest.org. Become a super friend of the show. There you'll get bonus episodes, extra long episodes, ad-free episodes, and you will warm my heart with warmth of your love and money. And I would really appreciate that. Because if you are following along on Instagram, this week I lost my job for exploring the ideas that challenge us and apparently challenge other people. And when we come too close to an idea that challenges us, sometimes we can eject the people who are also standing too close to that idea, even if it's not their idea themselves. So if you believe in connection rather than division, and you would rather understand than judge. Then I just digest is the place for you. Thanks for being a friend and your support is the best, the best. And if you're a super friend of the show, I did release a super episode uh, with a conversation between my wife and I as we go through the emotional roller coaster that is. Your job loss being ejected from some kind of community forcefully and then entering and getting churned up by that rumor mill of, look, oh, I heard this and I heard that with, obviously, as rumors happened, no right of reply. But that places me now in very good company. Many friends of the show that I've had on and spoken with have gone through something similar. So my empathy reserves have been expanded. Thank you so much to the soon-to-be friends of the show that skimmed it, read some titles, didn't understand it, didn't take the time, but you're always welcome here. Let me ex- expand. My table is big enough, is yours, hopefully soon. Very condescending, but I'm trying to remain open. <laughs> it's not condescending, I swear. Okay, moving on. To this week's episode, sometimes sometimes Matt and I, we're on the front lines, copping bullets in the culture war, people firing at each other. That's a dangerous idea. You can't look at that. That person's toxic, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But this week I find myself alone, obviously, in the green pastures and the gentle rolling slopes of the land of nuance. It's a nice, nuanced land. Actually, maybe that's not the right metaphor. It's more like sitting on a fence getting a wedgie because you've got a foot in both camps, and it's actually a bit uncomfortable to try and hold what seems to be two oppositional ideas, and that's what this, week, this week's episode contains a lot of. I bring in returning very good friend of the show, Brad Jerzak, and you might get the sense as you listen to the episode that he is a bit of a fence sitter, a kind of foot-in-both-camps type of guy, if you're judging him, because I know when we judge, we confess. You're a friend of the show. Thanks for doing that. And a topic I keep coming back to in this podcast, alas, I cannot escape it, it's in the lands of Christianity, and... I've obviously spoken to some very conservative friends of the show, some very fundamentalist friends of the show, very progressive and deconstructed friends of the show, all under that broad Christian umbrella, both tribes fighting it out for which is the true Christianity, which is the better or the superior Christianity, who is right and who is wrong. That's the battle that, that rages. And if it's getting caught in between those two warring sides that cost me my job, as I've just explained. But in this episode, you will hear... Please, I hope you will hear what I believe to be There's the disclaimers. But when I put it on Instagram, I'll cut all the disclaimers out and it will just be confident answers and assertion for the God of the algorithm. Please, dear Lord of the algorithm, boost my posts, spread the gospel of Ideas Digest. Oh, blasphemous. Don't edit that one out. The God of the algorithm, we all bow down to it. So let me clickbait it for the algorithm. Pay my pay my tithes to the algorithm, or give my sacrifices to the algorithm. I've given enough this week to you, algorithm. Focus, Conrad, focus. In In this episode, you will hear the best conservative Christian arguments that I've personally come across and learn why conservatives keep kicking progressives out of the church forcefully and why deconstruction is both necessary and very dangerous. If that sounds like something you're interested in, here we go. Now, I'm very aware that other friends of the show, maybe atheist friends of the show, agnostic friends of the show, hear these topics. Oh, Christianity. Here we go again, Conrad. Oh, I do not care. What is the point? Fair enough, I hear you. I say to you, very fair. I find exploring these ideas around Christianity an interesting topic of the tensions that I think exist in the political realm and in the cultural realm. This tension that happens between progressives and conservatives, this example is within Christianity. But I think it occurs within every organizational tribe. There's always factions within that. There's always ones that want to pull it forward. And there's always ones that want to hold it back. And it's that dynamic that I think exists everywhere. So what I'm going to do by myself, as I sit here listening to this episode, I'm going to provide some kind of inside baseball for you Aussie mates inside cricket i don't know if that's a thing but if you're watching cricket ever there's all this great tech of like where the ball would have landed the heat map on the pitch and what's happening it's very nerdy so anyway i'm going to give you some inside baseball commentary as we go through this episode on what i was trying to explore here what ideas i think are interesting that he's pulling out that gets my old brain noggin thinking about certain things and shifts things and puts it into a new perspective so Hopefully, for those of you who are like, oh, boo, boring theological language, hopefully I can uh, pull out some stuff that you might find helpful and interesting, no matter where you sit on the religious spectrum. So, here we go. Don't they don't for hey, welcoming back, good friend of the show, Brad Jerzak. Thanks for joining Ideas Digest podcast for, I think, a fourth time.
0: I'm so happy to be here. It's good to hear, see your face.
1: We've chatted a few times. I know a little bit about you. You've been busy writing a book and normally I would judge you, but I feel like I know too much about you now to judge you. So I'm wondering since the last time we spoke, I'm wondering if you've faced any judgments or categories and names thrown at you in the time since we've been talking. Any comments coming through on Instagram accusing
0: you of being something? Oh since we've last talked probably nothing new you know I'm I'm better at self loathing than others are at accusation so um if they if I'm if I'm labeled with something I can genuinely say oh that's nothing it's like way worse than you think
1: <laughs> so what are the i guess what what's the common the common categories that you keep coming across of people throwing at you
0: Well, again, some of the you know I have to say people have been kinder in more recent years, but you know for those who uh, those from the right, um, so called, you know on the spectrum, political right, yeah, yeah, political or ideological or or theological right, they probably think I'm a heretic. And my favorite label from that end was I was called the love heretic. Love, and it's because I believe, yeah, I believe God is love, and I believe that that god is love only like that's his nature and essence so you don't have multiple natures Mm -hmm. you got like the nature is love and they're like no no he's got to be love but also angry love but also wrath love but also holy love and i am like, no he's not those are facets of love and if they're not Mm -hmm. not interested in them so that that's that's my favorite um uh label that i've been i'll wear that one happily
1: Mm-hmm. So too too loving, too accepting, probably not taking doctrine seriously, but you're still very much in the Christian space. Yeah. that's that's
0: kind of the tribal camp that that you sit within. Kind of like I really have a hard time identifying with that label anymore just because it's so unchristlike. You know, it's devolved so badly that it's unrecognizable. And this goes back to like, you can think about Leo Tolstoy. He saw this too. He's like Christianity and Jesus following aren't the same thing. And there's periods of time when they actually drift even further apart. And I think this is one of those times. So I'm kind of reluctant to wear the Christian label, but yeah, that's the tradition I circle in. And I haven't mm-hmm. totally abandoned it because I, I I want to see what I can do from the inside and uh, by mm-hmm. way of reform. And I actually think we're making some traction on that. So, but you can imagine whatever most people think a Christian is, I, I wouldn't be able to affirm that. Um, you would like to identify
1: yourself as Christian, but then you uh, seem to be saying the way the world sees it and the way... Other people identify with being Christian and the way that expresses in the world. You are seemingly wanting to distance yourself from that.
0: In the, I suppose, the public perception of it all. Yeah, and also in my personal convictions too, right? So I'll give you a simple example. I attend an Orthodox monastery, Eastern Orthodox Christian monastery. That's where I go to church. I preach there once in a while. Um, meanwhile, what does Eastern Orthodox mean in the world right now? Oh that's the patriarch mm. of of moscow who's in bed with putin um uh. spouting christian nationalism in a horrendous way that that is undergirding the invasion of ukraine i'm like well whatever that is i'm not that so the probably mm. the most powerful hierarch in the tradition of which i'm a part i would regard as an antichrist <laughs> so Um, Mm. And you can see that also with our friends down down and up in America, um, where they're struggling with the same thing, where where, to the degree that white Christian nationalism has has co-opted the brand, people are like, Mm -hmm. no, thank you. But I do want to make one point about that. Lisa Lisa Sharon Harper, who's a black activist and pastor in America, she says, you know, if you use... Uh, let's say, white nationalism as your reason for leaving the church without investigating the black gospel. Even leaving without doing that is an act of white um, uh, white dominance. (laughs) And I'm like, what? So she blew me out of the water with that one, right? Because she's basically saying, you've Mm -hmm. identified Christianity with whiteness and you've abandoned it thus negating mm. my whole tradition, which does worship the brown Jesus of the Middle East mm. who has nothing to do with colonialism. So that's that was that was quite a revelation to me. but you can see how mm-hmm. what I'm saying is we're wrestling with this globally. Do, like do we use that word? Well, we I associate with Jesus. Um, mm. yeah, and the dark side of that, is right now a friend of mine in in America, he's done a survey of 3,000 active church-going Christians, conservative and progressive, when he presents one paragraph from the Sermon on the Mount on forgiveness and loving your enemies. Three quarters of the conservative Christians say this, that feels like you're expecting us to compromise with sin. Three quarters of the progressive Christians In the churches say that feels like you're expecting us to be complicit with injustice so it doesn't matter where you are in the spectrum Mm. three-quarters of American Christians don't associate with the Sermon on the Mount and so like that kind of thing really Mm. is quite rattling but maybe maybe out of the embers that's the name of my book out of the embers like who knows what faith will emerge You've set up quite a dire
1: picture of your assessment of lot, like Christianity today. And the Christianity, the, that word means a lot of things to a lot of people, different countries, different places, different denominations have different impacts in their community. They have different reasons for existing in the community and they have different expressions and interpretations of Jesus within in that community. And when, when you're, it sounds like your assessment looking at this from where you sit you see this fundamentalist conservative movement, people are saying, that's too much forgiveness. These people can't be given a pass. And then the progressive, the reaction to that movement almost is having the same reaction to some of the things you're pointing out, saying, no, because that's also like you're telling us to forgive racists and you're telling us to, um like, forgive homophobes and people we're trying to include. And it sounds as if you're you're just painting quite the dire picture of Christianity today being co-opted by political forces, nationalistic forces, um, cultural forces, perhaps virtue signaling forces, or being just co-opted for our own means. Is that like a fair, dire assessment that
0: you're setting up? That's a fairly dire assessment, isn't it? I sound grumpy today. I even had my coffee. But I kind of feel like that's true, and yet I don't despair. And here's why I don't despair, um, that the gospel Mm. and the great Hebrew prophetic tradition has always been a minority report within an institution. So in the Old Testament, you've got this temple establishment, and then outside that temple establishment, you have these prophetic voices. And that's how Judaism works. That's actually its genius. And Christianity was just an extension of that, where, where Christ comes along and who crucifies him? The temple establishment. Um, and, and to the degree, especially, that, the, that they were conspiring with an imperial government. And so, so does that mean we abandon um, Jewish faith or Christian faith? It's like, oh, no, this is how it works. And so I'm okay to be a minority report within a broader corrupted institution because for whatever reason, that's kind of a picture of the world. You're saying there's a reason not to despair. You're saying how you're still
1: within this highly corrupted, co-opted system that seems to be used as perhaps it's always been used to be co-opted into systems of power to, I mean, I, I have, that's, that's the first time I've heard that example, because obviously I'm unfamiliar with the Orthodox tradition, but obviously Putin going in front of soldiers saying, hey, no greater love than to lie, lay down your life for, a, for another, and then sends, them in, sends just human meat shields into Ukraine to invade another country, like co-opting religion as a force for the state. And then you can go, ah, oh, I can't think of any other country that's done that, America, every, every sort of, I mean, I don't want to draw false equivalences. Someone's invading somebody, somebody isn't. Well, the British I mean,
0: Commonwealth, maybe, you know?
1: <laughs> the British Commonwealth, like there's this history of co-opting religion to further power in some means. How do you remain within a tradition that has done something, that is doing something as an establishment, so problematic. How can you bother to stay there? And where is the hope?
0: Let, let me let me set some contrast. I think there's a way of seeing the church as an it, and the way of seeing the church as an as a she. So the church as it is that institution that gets co-opted for power purposes. The she is all these precious people that we see. When I go to visit my home church in, in the little town I grew up in what I see is uh, elderly people making casseroles for widows and knitting mittens for homeless people and taking care of children. Um, you know, like So I'm like, okay, so I should distinguish between this big, nefarious, abstracted it and actual people on the ground who I called auntie and uncle when I was a little boy. So that's one way to see it. A second way to see it is if you look at the book of revelation um i grew up hearing about the whore of babylon and the bride of christ i thought that was two groups but that's not what the book of revelation is doing it's saying through uh that there is a transformation happening whereby the whore of babylon becomes the bride of christ this is like the book of hosea that in our unfaithfulness god is faithful in the stains and the wrinkles on our wedding garments he comes and he can cleanse that now i could also if i despair i could say well i'll just leave then and go where <laughs> um here's a here's a really striking example that I, I i mentioned in my book and that is uh in canada the church became agents of the residential schools that came that that took indigenous children out of their homes and they put them in the schools and the, and the government employed the churches to quote, uh, get, take the Indian out of the Indian. In other words, to secularize Mm -hmm. them. So the church Mm -hmm. was a secular, was meant to take these poor quote, backwards superstitious people and strip them of their culture, of their religion, of their, worldview of their rituals of their myths all of that they couldn't do that they couldn't dress like indigenous people they were forced to cut their hair but but here's what happens we go wow the church was awful hang on whose philosophy was the church employing it was european progressivism secularism that had already said We've got to get rid of the superstition and these myths from these Catholics. So let's behead them in Paris. But then they turn around and say, and we're going to use those same Catholic priests to sort of behead the culture of indigenous people in Canada. And now here's the weird thing. The church is treated, rightfully so, as uh, wicked agents of that. But somehow the progressive seculars are patting themselves on the back as allies, I'm like allies. This was your idea, and it's mm. still their idea because uh, we'll we'll acknowledge and celebrate indigenous peoples and their rituals and their prayers and all that as long as it's in a museum or a festival, mm. but it's sequestered from secular life. So I'm like, wow. So I guess if I leave the church, where am I going to go? Well, not mm. not to not to that movement. They're the one. There was more bloodshed from then than you know, like, so it's sort of like, you're still going to run into people and institutions. Um, mm, it, well, it sounds like as you're talking about a society
1: being impacted by religions, churches, cultures, and different movements that are shaping the, the collective consciousness or how we're moving through society. It sounds like a very difficult task in order to pull out what was the problem historically. So we can look at heinous and atrocious acts going on, you know, colon- like the colonialization of different countries by the British Empire, the invasion of many other different countries by the American Empire, and you can keep going back in history. And we seem to have... We we have a story attached to that history saying, well, this, so if you ask a Sam Harris or a, an atheist, they'll go, well, the problem was always religion. This was always like... The, the pinpoint of why we went wrong. and then it sounds like you're saying, well, no, I don't know if that was a problem or maybe yes it was the problem, but then there was also this like problem within society and it sounds like what we decide is the bet is the best way forward now like what we what we decide where we should belong today depends on the story where're looking at the his at, we're looking at history through, whether we think that, Church has largely been a force for evil or largely been a force for good or there were other forces at work there. You're painting a very complex, difficult question because I just want a simple answer, Brad. I want like, is is church good or bad? Should I be in it or not? Is secularism good or bad? Because I hear separation of church and state is really good. I hear sequestering religion away from policymakers as something really good. So now I'm just confused
0: yeah that that is complex because i absolutely (laughs) believe in the separation of church and state because i Mm. see what happens when power gets into the hands of uh, religious authorities it's like it never goes well so there's that Mm. but i also want to say to folks like sam harris oh okay we're gonna now just get rid of religion and that will solve the problem well could i bring the receipts in body count from secularized societies in the 20th century, Mao, Stalin, the, it's unbelievable what happened in the name of of, the, of secular power when they successfully crushed the churches. So I'm like, okay, so that's not the solution. What could be the solution? Um, I, I, um, so so I guess I do want to problematize our simplistic ways of thinking about it. And and I mean that on the ground too. Here's here's something that happened in Canada. So when we found out about all the damage the churches did to the poor indigenous children and the amount of of death they experienced, um, it was actual genocide. Uh, So what happens now? It's like, well, the church is evil. I know. Let's burn the churches down, including on indigenous land where the indigenous people Built the churches and worship, and so you've got someone who's a supposed white progressive ally cheering arson and vandalism of indigenous churches, and they're like, "Well, they shouldn't believe in Jesus anyway, don't they know their history?" Oh, I get it, they're backwards again, are they? They're too stupid to have their own faith, are they? Uh, no, what if they've embraced uh, the true Jesus and not the colonized, uh, you know, European Jesus? What if they've in encountered a real and living faith that has somehow helped them survive the residential schools and those atrocities. So then to turn around on them and say, well, we just need to get rid of their religion again. Try telling that to the black community in America. So what do you do if you take away the black gospel, the history of black preachers, the black gospel music, the black... Uh, and so I've seen this, I've seen this where you'll have folks on, on the internet go learn your history. Like they're rebuking black people for having faith. And it's like, really, you're going to, you're going to strip all of that culture out of us and call us and call yourself an ally. So I don't think that's being a good ally, but I also don't claim I'm a good ally. I just, I've, I've seen the uselessness of that. I'm just simply not. I'm, I, I'm kind of mouthy about some of this stuff because I'm, my my issue around it is, is where I see self-righteousness, I want to call it, because I see it mm-hmm. in me, I see it in the church, and I see it in the anti-church movement. It's just unbelievable how infectious self-righteousness is when you think you're doing justice in the world. Again, dire, but maybe, um, you know, I'm told these are the days for deconstruction, so let's do it right. So at
1: this point, Brad is probably sounding like... A lot of deconstructed progressive Christian types that pull out the problems of the church and the institution. But then in the same breath, he's talking about the problems of secular society, colonialism, and the way in which our society has developed to oppress other people and how religion has been co opted in that. So it's at this point where I'm thinking, all right, so what is it you're trying to sell me? What, what? What kind of worldview do you have that will make my life better? This is, this is what I'm always trying to nail down in on when I'm talking to someone. We all share ideas because we think we have something that can help other people or have, has helped us and then can maybe help other people. So I'm, I'm trying to nail in, nail Brad down to go, what is it? Can you, can you really narrow in on what it is you're selling to me? Brad, you've written a book. The tagline of it is Faith After the Great Deconstruction. What is a central idea in the book that you're going to sell to me? How can this... Are are you going to give me an idea that just breaks my current worldview and then leave me out in the wilderness? Or is there some other central idea to what you're selling?
0: Yeah, so... If I might do a threefold central idea based in the parts of the book, the first part of the book are memoirs of folks who've experienced what we're calling deconstruction all the way on the spectrum from super liberating to incredibly traumatic. So I'm wanting to say deconstruction is a complex experience, and I've, I've felt both. I felt a weight of a thousand pounds come off my back when I stopped believing in a God who's out to get me. But I also experienced the trauma of deconstruction when I went through a personal meltdown, and I didn't know if there's a God I can trust. So, so, so I lay that out in order to say, let's let's not um, let's be empathetic here when people are disoriented and not put our story on them because we're complex. The second part is like, if we're going to get help, we should at least ask the experts from history in this. People who didn't just play at it, but made a lasting career of it. So I, I look at like, what did Moses, what was Moses up to when he deconstructed the golden calf? What were the early church fathers up to when they said, God is beyond every idea you have of God? What, is, what are our beloved frenemies, Voltaire and Nietzsche, really critiquing in Christendom? Are they just bad people? Or maybe were they seeing something really dark and naming it as darkness? What about people who didn't leave the faith, like Dostoevsky and Kierkegaard and Simone Weil, who are way harder on the church than Simone Veil is? I mean, than, than Sam Harris is. I mean, Sam Harris is a lightweight in his critiques compared to Kierkegaard. So I'm like, no, let's really go for it. Let's ask the ex- experts, right? And then, um, and then the last section is like, okay, where if it's all burnt down, and we start stirring the embers, can we find authentic faith anywhere that's worth gravitating to? And maybe even dying for and I believe that some of those voices are outside the status quo camp let's for example the black voice in America for example the martyrs who are willing to die for their faith Um, it tends to be margins outside the camp so the book of Hebrews says this let's go outside the camp to where Jesus is so he's he's out there among the marginalized and weirdly, that's not the fringes of faith. That's, that's home base. Um, the great status quo empire of Christianity is actually on the outskirts or maybe on the outs. That's, that's the thing that killed them in the first place. So I'm very interested in that, in becoming a student of people of faith in the marginalized world where Jesus dwells. I'm very fascinated by that. And I think they can be our teachers and guides in this. I'm certainly not, but I'm, I'm pretty good at being a student. So mm-hmm. I, I want to learn from them. And what they've taught me includes some basic, basic things. If your deconstruction leads to alienation, don't stop. You've got to come back to something we call presence in communion, where we're present to each other. And I'm talking outside the outside of christianity as well i'm even thinking what if the church is everybody and christianity is the subset what if church Mm -hmm. is anywhere and anything and anybody where there's an exchange of grace and so i'm suddenly realizing oh i can have that exchange of grace with the sikh community in abbotsford bc one of my best friends is a Muslim who is a, a Quranic scholar. He says, "Oh, you can't actually be a good Muslim unless you follow Jesus. The Quran says so. you know mm-hmm. And so I'm realizing, oh that what I call church, the gathering, right is, is, mm-hmm. is, is massive. It's bigger, it's all inclusive. And, mm-hmm. um, and it has to do with community and, and a living connection with God and neighbor. Super simple love God, love Mm -hmm. your neighbor, experience grace. That's it. I'd
1: like to get your take on what is deconstruction and how I guess, how do you see it? Because from what I'm gathering, it sounds like when I hear the word deconstruction, I see you know some Christian friends of the show, maybe some more fundamentalist friends of the show, looking at the word deconstruction and they go, this thing is dangerous. It's a gateway into relativism. It's a gateway into universalism. It's a gateway into atheism. It opens you up to listen to the Sam Harris of the world that are waiting in the wings to destroy your faith. It sounds like deconstruction is this perhaps this slippery pathway into the radical left that that people are, are talking about. So when when you're talking about deconstruction, it sounds like you're saying, let's take this simple worldview with answers that, ha- that we've encountered that had a lot of problems within it, whether that's how our system oppresses other people, how we might be treating other people, how our worldview actually excludes some other people. And let's break that down and make it more complicated. Is this what you're
0: talking deconstruction is? Yeah, something like that. I think that's that's a good summary. I, I might word it this way. If you think about the, the core part of that word, it's construct. So when we, when we build a construct, to deconstruct is to evaluate that construct, to evaluate the hidden uh, agendas and assumptions in that construct and how um, especially how that construct is used um, to leverage power. I think this is what Jacques Derrida was up to when he used the word in the 60s. So the idea is this, um, if I have a construct of God that is not God, mm-hmm. then it's an idol and it needs to be dismantled. Every false image of God Is a construct maybe even my true images of God are just healthy constructs (laughs) but it's still not God and so that would be one that'd be the simplest form of this where so you've got I think two reactions to this one is uh, on one side you've described it I call them the hand-wringing pastors who are terrified of where this is going and labeling it as as a backsliding and we need to usher people back in through the door and it's like definitely not if they've left, maybe they left because of spiritual abuse. Maybe they left because they saw a golden calf in your church. Maybe they left because the constructs they had that were in, held them in bondage are actually um, melting away, and that's a good thing. The other, on the other hand, you've got, you've got the deconstructionist movement, and um, I guess I'm kind of centering myself in that right now. But so many of them are what I would call happy, clappy cheerleaders who are saying, oh, good, burn it all down. And deconstruction's wonderful. Just follow your own dreams, follow your own heart. And then, then I'm watching people follow their own heart into a deconstruction where they abandon their children. They're unfaithful to their wives. They go, you know, like, mm. I'm like, really, we're just you're just throwing in a grenade and pretending it's like a good testimony. It still sounds very evangelical to me. So, and what they're not doing is seeing that deconstruction is necessary, but it's also quite traumatic for a lot of people. So let's not just be like the the spotter in a gymnasium saying, you can do it. You can do it. And meanwhile, the person's being steamrolled and they're like, I can't do it. I'm dying here. So I have friends who have that very liberating kind of deconstruction that has led them to flourishing. And I get DMs from psych wards from people who said, I heard it was going to be great. And now I have no meaning left and I don't know why I'm alive. And I called out to God and all I heard back was your name. What are you supposed to tell me? I'm like, oh, no pressure. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. and I think what I tell them is like look at you have a living connection with a God who loves you Let's see if we can find it because they've been left bereft by the deconstructionists who are just evangelists of the of They're not they're arsonists at some point So you got the pastor who's trying to control people back into the church, but you've got a -hmm. kind of deconstructionist Who just wants to burn faith
1: down and walk away? Just like light the match, drop it, and be like, "You'll be right."
0: I was fine on your, on your, on your horse. Yeah, this is the whole uh, plot of Dostoevsky's novel *Demons*, or it's also called *The Possessed*. And it's how, how uh, in the early 1800s, the the people of Russia rightly saw. How corrupt the church and the and the bourgeois establishment were, and they they were deconstructing it. But then, very quickly, they become possessed by nihilism and this kind of social arson. And what they hoped would be a, a progressive move becomes a violent revolution that leaves millions and millions of people in the gulags. And so Dostoevsky sees that, and he may, he kind of treats it like. Um, the the story of the gathering demoniac. So here you've got this demoniac. He's been possessed by an idea, and so Christ comes along, and the and and the herds, the herds that that's what Kierkegaard will call them. Um, he will call uh, Nietzsche will call him the last man. They're like the the demonized pigs running into the sea. But he goes, you know what? There's hope at the end because you still got the man who's now been set free. He's been set free from the corrupted religion, but he's also been set free from destructive ideology. And maybe there's some peace in his heart. And that's what I want. I want, I'm like, I want to find that. I want I want to get past all the polarizing rancor by by saying the whole damn spectrum, left, right, progressive, conservative, that's the world system that possesses us with an agenda to us theming. And this is where I I'm a big believer in your podcast. You you have assaulted that us them scenario head on by bringing on people that I absolutely disagree with and what what do you know you're having civil conversation with them and I can leave in a place of peace rather than all stirred up. Now I'm I'm so I'm so I I'm a little zealous today so I'm sorry if I've stirred up people but I I'm, I'm trying to say that The solution is off that spectrum. You're
1: talking about deconstruction as different for different people, different depending on where you sit, the culture you sit, the society you sit, um, your disposition, your ability to, I suppose, listen to your own inner voice. Before I get to my next question, what then is the age of deconstruction? You you mentioned in your book there's this there's like this collective or, or societal deconstruction. Is this is this a new thing? Is this happening more than we think? Is this something that's happening in the fringes of churches and it's just a few people kind of asking questions and leaving, or is it as maybe you're indicating the age of deconstruction, a bigger pattern of of what uh, like? awakening, like new age people might say, or waking up to the systems or good questions being asked or a pandemic of bad ideas, like some people might be thinking, what is this age of deconstruction?
0: Wow, you just really defined it beautifully, actually. Um, So I call it the great deconstruction because I am associating it with previous eras, right? So you've got the great reformation or you've got the great awakening in America. Um, You've got the enlightenment era in Europe. And I'm saying that whatever is going on right now. It's beyond trendy It's become a movement and I don't know how long it will last, but you've just highlighted two important elements There is a massive enlightenment element to this where we are waking up and there's also this other chaotic darkness that's attending it and so so for example, um, you've got people who are waking up to the idea that using um, the mythology of eternal conscious torment to try to produce faith in people, that that's just a heresy, and we need to get rid of that as fast as we can, and we will. That's that's a good kind of awakening. But then you've also got those who um, um, felt so uh, I suppose disenfranchised in some ways, that they became susceptible to, to things like the QAnon conspiracy theorists and, and make America great again kind of uh, nonsense. And, and so it's almost like in, the, in this era we're so disoriented that if we don't anchor into something wholesome, and you can, then you'll also be really suggestible to the, the nut jobs. Anchoring into something
1: wholesome. Okay. So I guess this is potentially where we're linking back into when you keep using the word faith, because as I hear you talk about, okay, something's going on. Is it an awakening? Is it a necessary deconstruction? Is it a reformation of sorts? Is it like, what, what could it, what could that thing be? But the, when I hear you talk about deconstruction, you're, you're centering it in the person and their personal journey with deconstructing. You're saying it's necessary, but also people will have super traumatic experiences with it, super liberating experiences with it. Some people will leave it all behind and say, good riddance, who needs it? I'm happier without it. This is really great. And I've had friends at the show on. Um, Ryan Bell is probably someone I was thinking about who's like, I don't need it. I'm more loving without it. This is great. And then you've got other people who move into, you know, like this is like maybe the Brian McLarens who are saying, no, no, like this is what the scriptures is actually talking about. And and I'm deconstructing that, but I'm also staying within that tradition. And what seems to be the split within how I suppose people see deconstruction on one stereotypical end of the spectrum, that is, it's a really good thing and you can just follow your heart. You seem to also be indicating that some people might not have that ability or that capacity. And then you get to the other end of the spectrum that says deconstruction is dangerous. And I was watching, I was doing my homework on pushback for Brad Jerzak and I looked up very vocal anti-progressive Christianity movement and anti-deconstruction movement podcaster, Elisa Childers, reached out, tried to get on the show, not keen. That's fine. We'll keep trying. But she would say that she pushes back to to that narrative saying, trust your heart. She's saying the heart is wicked above all things. It can't be trusted. And it sounds like you have a foot in both camps. It sounds like you're saying, well, if this is leading, if deconstruction, trusting yourself, going, looking at the church, critiquing it and saying, "There's, there's no love in this. There's a golden calf in here. It sounds like you're, You've got your foot in the camp of moral relativism that says, I'm seeing a golden calf. I'm not necessarily saying you are, but then you've also got your foot in the other camp that's saying, but some people may not be able to trust themselves, even though some people can.
0: Yeah, it's complex, isn't it? Because people are. How about this? I'm trying to think, What what's a way we can helpfully distill this, uh, whatever this means right now. I I think one thing I'm investigating is, you know, Jesus didn't, I'm a Jesus guy. And the reason I'm a Jesus guy is I look at the fruit of his life. And I want to be like that. And I want to have a connection that he describes and demonstrates. And most of all, when I hear the word God, I need uh, the only God I can trust and worship has my wounds in His hands—the wounds I've inflicted and the wounds I've suffered. So it's not just an abstracted, ethereal God of light out there in the universe who kind of wants me to be happy. It's 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 the God who who bears my wounds, who can empathize through direct experience with trauma. I'm like, okay, I could trust that guy. And so so when I look to him. He, He never judges these things based in the theology. He doesn't go through his Bible to try to lawyer a point. What he does is, he says, here's how you test it, test by the fruit. So Brad, initially
1: to me, is sounding like a lot of other friends of the show that I've had on, that have deconstructed, turned it all in, have their religion and gone, this doesn't make sense, let's kind of pull it apart, find the pieces that work and don't work, and often they end up leaving. And the thing that I find that I hear in Brad's critique of deconstruction, which I was trying to push him on, the thing I don't hear much of is a critique on the the worst of deconstruction. You know, deconstruction is the, is the new thing everyone, is he, he's calling it the age of deconstruction, it's something that... People say is necessary, we have to go through, it's a way of critical thinking. Yeah, I get that. But then what is this dangerous pushback? Why are people ejected for exploring these dangerous ideas? Me. What? <laughs> I'm pointing to myself. What, why? What is the best conservative arguments you have? And Brad really, I feel like, hands some of the arguments that I haven't even been able to extract from conservative or fundamentalist friends of the show. He really puts it in a way that i haven't heard before and it's and it's interesting coming from someone who's saying deconstruction is necessary but also dangerous and can even be spiritual arson i think was the term he used so it's at this point where i'm thinking okay what's the what's the pushback here should (laughs) can you can you define it into something what someone should do so if you're in a religious community should you stay or should you go this is where i'm angling his diagnosis of the problem, which seems seems very complex and nuanced depending on different circumstances, like I said, the green pastures of nuance or the fence wedgie of nuance, uh, but then in that, then what do you do? Do you leave religion? Is there anything good in it? I don't know. I'm trying to really push this guy who seems to be really into the religious community, the religious world, uses religious language, finds it really interesting, but then critiques it heavily, but then also critiques the outside world heavily, so what should people do should they stay or should they go brad this is where i'm trying to push him a bit more on
0: so if the fruit of staying in your particular community in your church is religious ptsd that is destroying your life you should leave (laughs) and Mm -hmm. if in leaving you find yourself in isolation and alienation then like that's not good fruit either so let's let's Mm. find what flourishing looks like so so some of my friends will say um i could have never found the joy and stability and love that i found unless i left and then there's others and this would also be in my case uh there was a great period of my life when the world system and the individuals i knew in my school and in my town were incredible bullies i mean with a continual agenda to humiliate and dehumanize me and the only place i found belonging and safety was in my little church youth group and they protected me from um, the dissolution of my personhood so so which do you do? Do you stay or do you go? Well, you know, you test the fruit. You test the fruit and you go, okay, this feels healthier. Maybe I'm on the right track. I should find out if I'm on the right track by with people who love me enough to call me on my bullshit. Mm. And and so I, that's a big part of, of my thing right now is I, you know, I attend a church. But because of what Russian Orthodoxy is doing, I hold it with a very open hand. And... Mm-hmm. I attend faithfully a a 12-step recovery group, Christian and not, where we have discovered that God is loving, caring, responsive, and relational, and that surrendering to whatever God is or isn't, even anonymously, is setting us free and making us whole. Oh, that's good fruit. And then on top of that, I surround myself with friends and mentors who tell me the truth, when the things I'm doing and saying and being are harmful and they're not going to whitewash it, they're, they're, they're going to, mm-hmm. to call me out, but also without condemnation or accusation or, or throwing me under the bus. So I, I'm so lucky to have some people like that, too. That's how I can test the fruit. And mm-hmm. that's who I go to to say, um, I'm, I'm disoriented right now. I need, I need community like okay we'll walk with you and um, mm. that's what I'm hoping so I'm not here to tell people to leave the church or to return to the church I'm saying if you can find a healthy community where you experience belonging and flourishing and you're growing and, and um, then probably you're on the right track that feels like testing by a fruit so in the next
1: phase of I just, I just interviews. I'm always trying to push the idea. When I push back, I'm hoping to stretch it and see if I can channel the best arguments and questions people might have. And in this one, I'm trying to do two things at once. I'm trying to go, what is the progressive deconstructed person going to hear in what he is saying? What is the atheist friend of the show going to hear in what he's saying, which is religion's useful in some way, and why should I stay? And then also simultaneously, what the fundamentalist or the conservative is going to hear in what he's saying, because he he's said a few triggering phrases for each group. So I'm trying to, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to push back from from both camps as he, as he gets wedgied on the middle of this nuance, trying to articulate a very nuanced position as I'm hearing it. Brad, it still sounds like moral relativism. You're still placing yourself and your ability to determine whether that golden calf and that idol of God is in the church. And they would say, but I can't be trusted. And what's true for me should be true for everybody else. And so I'm seeking truth based on we, who we're all week, everyone, what they can agree on. And that's why we go back to the Bible and we say, well, this is the truth because I can't be trusted. Is testing the fruit how you find what's
0: true? Um, well, that's what Jesus says to do. But... I don't test the fruit, we do. This is really important. You know, when I preach in the Orthodox monastery, I have, the, the Archbishop gave me a rule. I can never use the word I or me in a sermon, ever. It's we and us, because we're a community. Then at my last 12 step meeting, one of the guys at the meeting said, I want you to notice something. The twelve steps never say "I." They say, "We." Admitted that we were powerless over our addictions. We mm. came to believe in it, and so then, then when we then when we make group decisions, we say we're going to listen together. We're going to listen together to our group conscience. So I'm very dedicated um, uh, to to not. Making these judgments on my own. I never do um, Well, that's a strong statement, but that's my that's my conviction and my commitment and my value That it's a wee thing, but I would absolutely say of course. There's relativism You can't take an abstracted law and impose it on every individual and their story and their stage in life That's crazy and the Bible never says to do that. In fact, Jesus, when he looks at that, this, he says, "You know what? You go learn what mercy means." Okay, if you want an absolute, there's one um, uh, that we're going to listen with compassion and mercy to the stories that present themselves to us, and we're going to respond in the love of God with empathy to that story, to that real person. And what I hear from fundamentalists sometimes is like, "Well, you're sentimentalizing the." The truth. I'm like, no. I'm. It's. I'm. In, it's incarnational. It's humanizing it. We have no business talking about, let's say, something like LGBTQ issues without reference to actual people and their stories. We have no hmm. business imposing any kind of moral law that is that is somehow divorced from real lives. That's that's the kind of stuff that got jesus crucified you know he mm. he he was unwilling he was unwilling to just flatten these things out as as depersonalized laws that then are then kind of used as hammers on on people so moral relativism absolutely but what, what is, was it a, what is it relative to it is relative mm. to the gospel of jesus christ as understood in a community that is flourishing by following him. That would be an answer anyways, <laughs> you know? So I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not the moral reference. Jesus is, and I don't decide what Jesus is on my own. So
1: hence the church, I guess. Interesting. If, if I'm to piece together what you're saying, you're saying something I haven't heard put before. What you have often is these two oscillating positions, and they just kind of bounce back and forth don't talk to each other and it's it seems what happens is is that let's say there's just two groups of people that hear something and go that doesn't work for me and then they go find the tribe and go see that's all bullshit like it that doesn't work for me and then you got the other side being that doesn't work for me the picture you're painting is this interesting pulling out of potentially what each position is holding at its best and and showing where the other one is overreacting to perhaps something missing in the other extreme position and you end up with two extreme positions and so if i'm to paint your what i'm hearing from your picture of moral relativism so the fundamentalists will say moral relativism is bad because we can't trust ourselves it's not different for everyone we make terrible decisions if i think it's okay to to murder someone then oh it must be morally okay then and uh, the other side is saying, no, no, moral relativism, it can only exist there. We only see life through a lens. I can only perceive what I can perceive. So I can't really speak for anybody else but myself. And then they say, oh, you don't, that's not true. But it sounds like what you're saying is let's expand, let's admit our limitation of going, okay, if, if we look at Jesus and go, this is the guy I want to follow me in my context, with my perception, with my upbringing, I have to approximate that. And for me in this scenario, it might look like what might be sinful for somebody else, but it actually isn't in my context. And that might be hard for people to get their head around. But then you're also saying that if the context is simply me, that's too narrow, that's too small. And this is what I think a lot of social justice movements are talking about when they're saying this system is oppressing other people. So if we, if I can expand my eye to my community around me and include that in my assessment of whether this idea has good fruit or not, because I could grow up in a church that served me very well. I'm young, I'm, young, I'm male, I'm privileged, I've got some decent money. The system works really, really well. But if my neighbor is different to me, is a woman, is a person of color, is... Um, disabled is whatever minority group we have in society. If my neighbor is struggling with something, then if I include them in my sense of testing the fruits, then all of a sudden I'm going, oh, this this isn't working. Is that is that how you'd expand this moral relativism to if you can make it about the us and the community, then it's more st- it's a more stabilizing force.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. And so beautifully said. I, I would sign up for that. You know, you're describing the greater good. And this is how it's different than, um, than what liberalism can become. Liberalism can be my rights to do what I want. And how dare you tell me what to do? Mm-hmm. And how dare you inconvenience me doing what I want to do? Well, everyone should just do what they want to do. Well, hang on a second. Who, who becomes the victim of that? The ones with the less power. Right. The mm-hmm. the 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 if everyone gets to do what everyone wants to do, then the people of privilege and power will just roll over the uh the, the underprivileged and 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 it, and it won't be rights for everyone. So we called this in the you know in the last centuries, we called it the common good, we called it common wheel, that is. If we're in, if we're in interdependence with one another, that there will, that we share the wealth that we have, and this is why, um, uh, you know, nations that have universal health care, for example, they've recognized that I, I need to. It's not about just me and my stuff and and my um, interest.
1: So the argument he just made. I'm just jumping in there is. I want to draw your attention to what I keep hearing is at the core of what, like conservative people, what's at the core of their arguments. The core of their arguments is often about power. And I'm linking that with an episode a couple of weeks ago with Will from the Renaissance of Men. That's what he was saying. His critique of why he can't get on board with evolution is because evolution is all about power. And it's just, if you're more powerful, then that's your moral standing. And Brad is... Alluding to this being also problematic like a conservative would, so I don't know, I just wanted to to point that out, is like, that's what people see when they hear the progressive, all they hear is moral relativism, meaning there is no objective standard for morals and what's right and what's wrong. And then they say, society just goes, well, it's just then, if there is no God, if there is no rule book, then it is just who is powerful determines what is right. That's what I'm hearing in what Brad's saying. That's why I keep coming back to I think I'm hearing the the best or what most well-articulated conservative
0: arguments I've come across. You also described something that that there's there is a label for it that um that I that, that I would associate with, and it's called critical realism. So there's a kind of absolute Let's say there's a kind of absolute relativism that says there's nothing real. It's all just a construct. I don't believe that. I think there's a there there. I think that there is a reality with a capital R. I think there is a good with a capital G. And it's real. So that's the realism part. It's not all just a construct. There's something actual, out, you know, bigger than me. And... Um, but the critical realism means I have no access to that real without my own lenses on. Mm-hmm. The greatest danger is to pretend I don't have lenses. And mm-hmm. to think that I have direct access to God or the good, which is beauty, truth, and justice. That's how I'm weighing the fruit, by the way. Beauty, truth, and justice are... are, are almost like the Trinity of the capital G good and that that's real to me, but I recognize and I want to be mindful all the time. In other words, I want to deconstruct my lenses to be aware that I have them to investigate where I got them and to think about how they distort or clarify my vision of the real. And so that's what a critical realist is. And that's kind of what I'm up to with this, even morally, I think there are some moral absolutes, but I can't experience them outside of my life, (laughs) outside of Mm. my family, my church, my culture.
1: So this is what progressive consistently accuse conservative thinkers of doing, especially in the religious world. But I think it extends to the political realm as well. They, They accuse you know, the progressive Christian will accuse the conservative Christian of reading the Bible with a lens. That's You're seeing through yourself as a lens. And you'll hear it in a lot of my interviews. This is what I'm trying to put in front of conservative friends of the show saying, you're reading this through your culture, which you've been brought up in, which is like a post enlightenment um, way of seeing the world. You're seeing it through You know your education level the the place in history that you are reading the bible 2022 is different from 2000 years ago when it was written and then they will respond no i'm not i don't have a lens i'm reading it how it actually was and is and is written and that is a key split in the conservative and the progressive so brad here is admitting that he believes he is seeing things through his own personal lens he does believe that there's truth out there but he sees it through his own life experience, his own culture, his own educational background, his the, the things that have impacted him. And he's he's saying what a progressive would say, which is that is inescapable and we must factor in that in our assessment of everything else. Whereas a conservative will respond to that and say, nope, that's relativism, that's not absolute. I'm not reading with any bias or any lens this is the way it is. And I think that is the tension of the split if you've had those conversations. It just hits that point, and
0: I don't think we progress beyond that very much. I'll give you a funny example. I have a friend who went to Africa, and he met with some Christians there, and, and, and these guys wanted to impose their moral standards on my friend's marriage. And their moral standards were, for a white person of privilege with the amount of money you have, how dare you? How dare you only have one wife? You are responsible to have at least three. Like that was their Christian, Christian moral judgment on the deficit of his sexual ethic was that, that monogamy is, is is economically irresponsible, selfish, and it is to neglect and abandon these poor women that and he's like, what? <laughs> so it what it did, it really blew his sense of um, like, like yeah. even a sex, sexual absolute, you won't even find those in the Bible. I mean, <laughs> like, if you want a biblical sex sex ethic, well, a which one? And B, are you sure? You know, <laughs> and because they're reflections of cultures and eras different than ours mm-hmm. that aren't to be imposed, you know. So the thing I really wanted to hear from Brad was a
1: critique of something I never hear a critique of, and that's of the deconstructed progressive slash progressive Christian movement. So I really wanted to push him, push him hard on that one. We've we've occupied a worldview as a society that's gone, okay, our communities are very homogenous. They're very... White middle class, this is my group. And 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 this work, this system works collectively really good for me. And then someone who's gay will pop up in the church. A woman will strive for leadership within the church. And do you think that historically Christianity has had the collective common good always in mind based on the community? Listen, this serves a community. Men are at the top. It's, it's kind of just how it works. Don't question it. And people pop up within that and go, hey, me as the individual is being lost here, downtrodden here. You know, this is always capitalism's critique of communism being like, yep, uh, you know, China can be pretty effective when they just go, hey, we want a freeway here and all you people move. They get freeways built quicker than in Canada, I bet, but a lot of people just get the individual is lost. And so it seems like there could be this, this reaction to the individual that's gone, no, no, my journey matters. The things of the church that, I, that, have, that I've that that i seen and participated in have hurt me. And now I'm trusting myself because that's been kind of neglected. So it almost seems like there's then been this reaction to it. And it sounds like you're trying to bring them both together going, we can't run roughshod over the individual for the good of the collective, but but we need a diverse community that can then help us all thrive. And if the individual needs to make the sacrifice, then that's a journey we're going to have to go on together. And probably me, myself, when I encounter that going, am I going to have to give something up to allow somebody else in? And then that's probably the difficult journey I'm going to have to wrestle with to perhaps lay my life down, perhaps how, how Jesus maybe would put it. So it seems like there's this deconstruction has come out of something what do you think is the problem with
0: deconstruction and this movement as you see it okay so first of all everything you just said in the last two minutes needs to be published it's like an incredible theory for healthy um a healthy way of community being i i'm serious we've got to get a transcript of that and i want to blog it for something like it's that (laughs) you can blog it It was that coherent, and and even if you're putting words in my mouth, I'll take those ones. Boy, I wish I had written <laughs> that. Um, um, having said that, all right, my critique of the the deconstruction movement begins with I get to I get to have a I get to make a critique because I have been a deconstructionist. I have a track record of doing that. Sort of like I have authority to critique the church because yes. I'm in it. Not only am I in the church, I've been complicit in the problem, <laughs> you know? So when I, when I speak there, it's not as an outsider looking down on it. It's like, no, this is we have sinned. And by we, I mean I've participated. All right, so now with deconstruction, um, I've been a, I, I was identified as a deconstructionist because I did such thorough and public and long-term deconstruction of penal substitutionary atonement. Eternal conscious torment, um, uh, retributive God who who does uh, genocidal acts in the scriptures and a literalist reading of those scriptures. Uh, the the you know so I've, I I'm speaking as an actual deconstructionist with with, with a, a public record that gives me some boldness to say some stuff in deconstructing deconstruction Excellent. i would i would simplify it this way i am making three assertions about deconstruction that it is necessary that it is perilous and that that it carries wonderful possibilities my critique is where any of those three elements are are dimmed Dimmed out or dumbed down. So, so when I'm saying what I'm saying to, let's say, an evangelical fundamentalist who says it's not necessary, it's dangerous, I'm like, no, it is necessary, it's natural, it's called growing up. Hmm. To the deconstructionist who ignores the perils and who is sloppy with it and does like, it's not that they've gone too far, it's that when we do it half assed, and so if they're not recognizing the legitimate trauma involved in deconstruction that many people experience, and they're not demonstrating a kind of empathy to that. And when they're just um, um, wanting to, to vandalize everything the people came from um, then I, then I would, I would critique that. And then also hmm. I think both both the fundamentalists and the deconstructionists can be guilty of not seeing this is the, the possibilities. So if you think that de- deconstruction is a destination, whether heaven or hell, <laughs> um, or heavenly or hellish, um, then you haven't you've forgotten it's only a journey to somewhere. This is a birth canal to new life. It's not the, it's, it, I haven't arrived. You don't, so you don't make an ism out of deconstruction or you get stuck there, like in the birth canal. You don't want to get stuck in a birth canal. We want to be birthed. So what a wonderful possibility. Um, what, what, I wonder what what's going to form out of this. I wonder where this is going because once you get rid of bad constructs, oh my goodness, maybe lots of good things are possible. It's messy mm. on the way and there's a lot of blood and screaming, like with any baby being born, um, so so yeah, so all of my critiques of left and right, pro and anti, would be if they take if they don't take seriously all three of those elements, the parable, the 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 necessity, the perils, and the possibilities. It it sounds to me like there can be
1: almost a distortion or a problem in some of those things that you outline. So if you say it's necessary. To, from the beginning it sounds like people who have deconstructed really understand the necessity of this because they went through it, they couldn't avoid it. So that almost sounds like a lesson of a, a lesson for perhaps the person who hasn't de- deconstructed is within the church doesn't need it, doesn't understand it. That seems to be like okay this is this is necessary but it sound, it sounds like anything necessary can breed a form of fundamentalism from the person who experienced it as necessary, because like we were talking about, I experienced it as something that I had to go through. I could not not go through it. You know, people ask me, Conrad, like, why are you always asking questions and like like your ideas? Like you're super into politics. What's going on? I'm like, I just can't not be this. My mind just fires questions and I just can't, it, I just can't avoid it. So if I go through this journey that say, Brad, like it's necessary, I know that. But then that can breed this form of fundamentalism that goes to you. And perhaps that links to your spiritual arson comment that says, hey, mate, mulch of cocktail. Genesis wasn't literal. <laughs> Whoa, what do you mean? The Bible's not real. Oh, crap. Oh, I'm burning. And it sounds like if it's necessary, then that can almost justify the arson that may take place when someone who's deconstructed looks at someone with perhaps problematic beliefs. Because it's almost like a justified Molotov cocktail of deconstruction being like, you're oppressing a minority group of people. I have a gay friend and he suffered so much at the hands of growing up within this church that's told him he is broken, wrong, all of those things. I'm just going to burn down your beliefs because you're causing harm over here. And that is a justified
0: thing. What's your take on that? Well, I can tell you one, the most painful experience I've ever had of that was I got in a really bad engagement on Twitter with a with a young activist from uh, the UK back this is years ago and and um, I the point I was trying I was I was trying to make was look at when someone just beware of your outrage because outrage makes you vulnerable to outra- the outrageous well it was a it was I think it's true, but it was a dumb thing to say at the time he was experiencing his own grief around a, a, mm. a deadly homophobic act that had happened. And he was in the LGBTQ community. And and then I'm like, and so he was very angry at me. And I said, uh, you know, I'm so sorry. I understand what you mean now. He, I mean, he's talking months later. and And mm. so I said, I said, but but you know, it's, it's not ultimately our anger that energizes justice. It's, it's love. And, and like, and he's like, no, my, all my motivation comes from, from anger. I'm like, so, but I would think that you, you care about the LGBT community and your love for the vulnerable teens and so Mm -hmm. on. And he's like, and he just like, how dare you tell me what I believe or think or do. I'm like, Okay, I want to make amends here. How about this? What about if you give me the name of of a group that you believe in that takes care of vulnerable LGBTQ teens, and I will use my platform to promote donations to the group of your choice? And he said, You don't understand my purpose in life is to create a world in which your grandchildren are embarrassed to know you. I'm like, Whoa. wow, that really hurt. Uh, especially now having grandchildren. So, so this is, this is progressive. No, this is arson. This is creating a world mm. deliberately, cre- that, that deliberately wants to spawn alienation. And rejects offers of uh, um, to 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 build bridges. That I, you know, mm. so I made the initial mistake for sure. And um, but there's a kind of progressive. I, I'm I'm using the word progressive. I I don't know what else to say. It's but it's still fundamental. There's a kind of left wing fundamentalism that mm. that cannot stand paths to redemption and wants to put landmines in those paths is that a form of deep
1: deep pain that this comes from this because i suppose what i've seen in a lot of the deconstruction movement online on instagram is this airing of perhaps legitimate grievances and often through, I feel like how Twitter and Instagram incentivizes this through algorithmic boosting is if you can have a snarky meme, you know, a, a quick worded jibe at the other side that gets to bottle up my pain and ridicule this other group. And it's only within this echo chamber of people being like, yeah, share, share, share. And it's like, it's, is there a form where that is necessary or healthy or because it sounds like we we're so hurt. We want to go through this pain in the extreme example you give, you've got this guy who's, you know, if he's experienced anything close to like someone dying or something like that, because of some really bad toxic ideas by somebody else, that pain is so great. And that anger is so, I guess, powerful. How do we how do we work through that? Is is any form of I guess arson to the other side? Is any of that justified? Are you telling me, and perhaps we're coming back to when you say the progressives are saying, there is no way I will stand shoulder to shoulder and understand a racist, Brad? That will make me complicit. You're a racist for even telling me that I, the victim here, the one with the boot on my neck, needs to forgive or understand that maybe this guy's racism is coming out of pain. How dare you?
0: Yeah. Oh man, that's such a good point. So like, first of all, I don't think it is for me to tell anybody what they need to do. Like I don't go to an indigenous healing circle with victims of those residential schools who were molested and starved by the, um, the, the people leading the school. I, 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 I might believe that a pathway for them will ultimately involve uh, forgiveness. But wow, for me to go in and moralize about that, you need to forgive. I would, I would agree with the condemnation of that kind of imposition. I think it's completely inappropriate. So I never say you need to do this. Um, what, I, what I need to do is exactly what you're suggesting at the beginning. I need to hear that anger and even hatefulness as lament. I need, if I have prophetic eyes, I need to see below the lashing out to the wound that was caused maybe by people like me. And, um, and, and I have a resource for that for myself. Um, uh, we, you know, in, in the great, uh, Judeo-Christian tradition of the Psalter, the Psalms, there's a great number of lament songs. And some of those lament songs are actually very angry. They're called imprecatory psalms. They're, call, they're about calling down um, um, curses and condemnation on your enemies. But you do it in a community and you do it in the presence of God who hears it as lament and confession and the function of that for me is when I pray an imprecatory psalm, it surfaces the malice in my heart where God can get at it. And, and so I'm not telling anyone else to do that, but if but when I do that, He can, He He, he can say, "Wow, that's like a really angry thing you're praying there." And I'm like, "Yes, thanks for giving me the words for it." And He goes no problem did you notice you were picturing people (laughs) and like i did notice that now so um so then i'm now i'm in a pickle because i have now been those those psalms permit me to say the harshest possible things like that, that that god would that god would smite the their babies on a stone like Oh, I don't believe that. He's like, then why are you picturing someone? <laughs> I'm like, no, I, I don't want that. I honestly don't want that. <laughs> well, what do you want then? It's like, well, I guess I want mercy. He goes, okay, glad you asked. Now we're at it. So they've the lament surfaces the malice. I, I get to see how ugly it is. I get to invite mercy. And now I'm being purged, right? Well, that, I, that's for me to do in in my community for my anger. What for me to do when I hear someone else's anger is not to say, you know what you should do? <laughs> um, yeah. it's, it's to say, oh my goodness, you sound super angry, but I bet under that there's a wound. Do you want to tell me your story? That That's probably the healthiest pathway. Mm. Just let people lament. But... Um, here's the trick uh, there are ideologies that call for lament without redemption and aren't interested in it and when those themselves become harmful that's what i mean by arson and that that's troubling to me and all i can do is critique it and say i hear your anger do you see the harm you're causing this third party um is that okay does that sound like justice to you um mm-hmm. I, I understand why you'd be angry and probably violent. But when that affects a third party, when that affects a livelihood, when that, you know, then, okay, let's do it. But let's not call it justice. Let's just call it vengeance. And go for it. Go be vengeful. But please don't try to sell that as the work of justice,
1: you know. Mm, but that's what we'll sell ourselves. That's the story we'll be telling ourselves because yeah. no one wants, we don't, we all don't believe we're the bad guy. This is like, it's, it's, this is why the, the best movies I like is when there's a bad guy that I can go, mm, I could end up like him. And that's quite profound is when you can realize that the bad guy is just someone else who thinks he's a good guy doing harm to, to somebody else. And yeah, yeah. You mentioned faith throughout this whole thing and you're using God language and you're using the story of Jesus and scripture and and that tradition in order to process how to navigate pain, suffering, loss, losing a worldview, losing security, finding it again. What, what is faith when you're talking about it? Does it have to be this Jesus thing? Is there a process of moving through this, I suppose, redemption arc? Because we can, if I take some of your ideas and apply them to maybe atheist friends of the show or people who have deconstructed and just don't need it anymore and go, listen, I'm happier without it. Is there a, is there a pathway? Because I hear in how you're processing this, you, you're talking about your religion as a framework or this spiritual language as a framework to go, well, Jesus told us to do this. This is like my model and I'm going to apply that myself. And then I might have these spiritual practices. You go, okay, the the scriptures have these Psalms of lament. And you know what? I can do that as a practice myself that can move me through this process of hurt, this process of grieving, this birthing into new worldviews and perspectives. So I don't kind of stay there. Do I have to be a Christian or come from a Christian background or have have even perhaps a spiritual tradition to move me through this process of being human? Or can I find it some other way? Can I deconstruct from Christianity and move through into a new worldview without just you know letting my grievance cause as much harm to some the person who caused me harm as possible? Is there a way of doing that? Without Jesus, without a Christian worldview, or without a religious worldview.
0: Yeah, that's also such a great question. And luckily, there's even there's there's labels for everything. And I know labels.
1: Oh, the annoying fade out. I'm very sorry to do that to you. If you would like to support the show, artist, org, Sign up, get the full episode. It was a great conversation. Let me sum it up a little bit from what I gathered from this conversation. He seems. To be saying something like, religion is very important. There's things that it can do that society has yet to replicate. I find that very interesting. But it's also very broken. And it's broken because all the critiques we hear about it, it's broken. They're actually true. So he doesn't seem to be denying any of those things. Um... It sounds to me like he's saying religion is important because it helps us grapple with our movement as people and community through society. Um, it helps us navigate our differences. How do we navigate two competing interest groups when one person's best interest causes someone else harm? How do we, how do we navigate suffering? Uh, he gives that example of lament and the religious practices contain within it, you know, practical rituals, I suppose, liturgies that help us deal with these sorts of things that's they feel like that's what i'm pulling out of this tell me what you're pulling out of it and he seems to be saying that without religion where do we find this stuff it seems to be saying it's unique to religion so i feel like that's his pitch for religion we need it but perhaps not in the form we currently have it um so I think there's there's a lot in this episode for you to personally wrestle with, for, for me to wrestle with and expand my understanding and of, of certain things. So tell me what you think. Do you think, does he have a point? Is religion really the only thing that can offer us a way of dealing with? Do we really need religion? And tell me, what do you think I should have, push back on what questions should i have asked and if there's someone who you think could push back well on brad jerzak's ideas send them through to me on instagram ideas digest and super friends you will get the rest of that convo so thanks for tuning in everyone and i'll catch you in the next episode